Welcome to the CND Podcast. I'm Naomi Kalachand and I'm the clinical editor. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Mahendra Patel. Dr. Patel is a member of the CND Clinical Advisory Board and is also a pharmacist and an academic. I spoke to Dr. Patel on a dreary day from my flat in London over an online call where he spoke to me from his home near Leeds. We talked about the risk assessments that are being carried out for BAME staff, the recommendations in the PHE review, and what more we can be doing to educate pharmacists and how pharmacists can help the community in the event of a second wave. First of all, let's talk about the the risk assessments that are being carried out for BAME staff um, at the minute in pharmacies. What else do you think can be done and are we doing enough? Well, we can always do more in terms of um, risk assessments. If you look at the higher proportion of people that are affected, particularly within the black and Asian minority group, in some areas that the Bangladeshi reported, depending on which reports are using, but um, accounting for age and geography and, and, and gender, um, it's clear that the, the, that the black and Bangladeshi population come out on top really in, in many ways, as do the Indian Pakistani compared to the white population. So, and we know that within community pharmacies, there's a lot of pharmacies that are situated sort of serving these areas, inner city areas, um, and so they're located in an ideal position um, in terms of supporting these communities. And we've also got to remember that deprivation is a key factor as well. Um, so in addition to the BME uh, uh, groups, um, those in deprived areas um, where there may not be necessarily any BME people, where it becomes a sort of a double whammy in many ways, that there is an opportunity for farmers to do something there as well. So can we do more in terms of risk assessment? If you look at our own staff, I'm, I'm worried that we've had a spike. How do we get prepared for the next spike, which is potentially around the corner? Um, and how do we protect our staff? You know, the safety of our, of our pharmacy workforce is, is paramount to every organisation and it's paramount to the profession that we work through uh, up and down the country really and particularly those on frontline faces. So education, we need to make sure that people are well aware of the the efforts that are being put in but the, the safety measures, the measures, um, if you look at the risk assessments, the risk assessments become how openly are there people going to come forward with the risk assessments? Organisations doing everything they can now. As you know, the, the government have recently announced that they've got to have a, a four-week turnaround, um, two weeks to get them in and two weeks to get them back out type of thing in terms of risk assessment. Um, so and that's been due to the pressure that the Royal Pharmaceutical Society have uh, put on various organisations and, and bodies, including the, the government. How do we get these to be more practically accepted. So there's two things here, Neymar. One of the things is the staff that's working and the need to engage in the risk assessment. How diligently are they going to engage in those risk assessments? How openly are they going to complete those assessments? And are they in a safe place, inverted commas, to be able to share their information with confidence, with trust, um, and with complete openness as to, as to where they belong. Take it a step further and then from an employer perspective, they're doing everything they can and they need to be 
beware of the cultural sensitivities in some areas um, where people may not want to talk to their managers and in terms of discussing their risk assessment so they may need to make it more user-friendly more accepting that everybody can talk on a level playing field with trust and openness and transparency i think that's one of the areas where we need to look at the other the other part is that we also need to be careful that some of the bme groups come from large extended families and how does that fit into the wider program in terms of risk so it's understanding the different people that the issue around bme is that we're putting everybody into one bag and we can't the black people have their own behaviors patterns attitudes and risk levels as do the Pakistani people, as do the Indians, as do the Bangladeshi. We all bring different things. So please, it's important that it's not a one-size-fits-all. So we need to be aware of the cultural differences behind uh, what's going on. So I think some of the issues is, is around making sure that there's cultural training, understanding, awareness and people are able to talk openly and freely. If we just um, think a bit about the the PHE review that was released a few weeks ago and the recommendations and that, do you agree with what they've suggested and do you think that's enough? Well, I think in terms of the PHE agreement, um, one of the recommendations is that there should be more research into the social and cultural structural um, determinants of the spread of virus among the BME community. Why hasn't that happened earlier? So, you, you know, we've had health inequalities for decades um, and we needed more focus and more attention, more direction in this area. The underlying problem uh, stems from health inequalities, which, which you know, there's lots of reasons behind that. Um, socioeconomic, um, deprivation, you know, cultural, there's all sorts of things behind that. But, as you know, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, mental health in some groups is higher compared to the white European population. If we are to address this problem, we need to have some clear research into the problems behind the underlying causes. We do not know yet what the causative factors are in terms of the coronavirus disease. What we do know is the people of the BME groups, and deprived groups, the elderly, the male population, all those things we know that there's high risk, obesity, um, but we don't know what is the exact causative factor per se. And the working, there's lots of studies going on. So until then, we need evidence as to how we can support the spread or lessen the spread of the virus amongst the BME community and that's to do with behaviour, understanding, correct messaging, what works well with some communities may not work well with another community. So again this is this business about putting everyone into one envelope, it doesn't work like that. Maybe that some people like uh, advice in, in different languages. It may be that some people um, want advice through their local radio station, their TV stations, and, and, and it, it just depends where we are with what, where, how we're trying to get this across in the most effective manner. And, and where can you see where pharmacists can step in? So obviously we've seen in the last couple of days Leicester are having a local lockdown um, and we've seen the first wave now. So what have we learned from the first wave that we can potentially you know, step in and help patients um, if there were to be a second wave? 
Well, they're all talking about a potential second wave. We've got Leicester localised lockdowns. My worry is we need to be proactive rather than reactive. And if you start mapping out up and down the country, if you go to the north of the country where there's you know, high, high proportion of people being affected in the deprived communities and not necessarily the BME communities, then there's an opportunity here for pharmacists to be engaged um, more actively in looking out for these signs um, and being aware. Uh, and in terms of the public health message, um, that from an English perspective, if they're English speaking, is fine. But you translate that, that down to the, the people within the BME groups, within the different minority ethnic groups there, then you've got religious, cultural, behavioural differences. And it's then making sure of how they adapt and are, are more informed um, in terms of the messaging and the impact of coronavirus. So Leicester has got one. We could, could we expect one in Birmingham, for example? Could we expect one in Bradford? Could we expect one in Leeds? Could we expect one in Manchester? We could go on and these are potential hot spots that could be identified and we could target those areas. And perhaps the, one of the other things is for the pharmacies to be more aware that we are in these situations and therefore they step up their game. The other factor is it also increases the risk for the pharmacy workforce as well working in those areas. So it becomes a two-way thing. So we need to make sure that they are well protected in those areas, not just in terms from the workforce itself and their fellow colleagues, but the higher risk and the higher number of people around them uh, from a community perspective that could then bring in that virus. So how do we do that other than just messaging? And I think this is where we take the services to the community. The NHS long-term plan fits, you know, it talks about community engagement, getting more involved. Is this, I ask, another way where pharmacy could be leading the way? For decades we've been trying to address the issues around health inequalities and, you know, various government changes. But things are not moving. We have recommendations. It's implementing those recommendations and it's monitoring those recommendations and, and it's how effective are those recommendations. So there's lots going on. People do try, but it's actually getting some benefit out of that. The one thing that they haven't tried is mobilising the workforce that we've got. Um, and that I'm saying clearly, let's invest in that workforce, which is our community pharmacy. They are ideally positioned in the city areas, within deprived, serving deprived communities, serving BME populations in, in various areas um, where people are, are, are often living uh, in some groups, as we've seen in Leicester, close together, they're, they're very compacted. Is there a message that the local community pharmacies can work with these communities um, and then perhaps even look at their other long-term conditions because that's something that could pile up as well. Um, as we know that people during lockdown have not been able to ac you know, they, they access their services or have not accessed GP services as much as they would like, uh, even to go to urgent emergency care services as well really. So. We don't want them to leave behind some of the conditions that they have 
leave them untreated and they then manifest into something that then becomes unmanageable. So if you look at diabetes, it's absolutely key that they're on top of that. Isn't that where pharmacies place? Isn't that where pharmacies should be going out to these groups of people now? And isn't that where the investment needs to be? And isn't that where we can potentially reduce some of the health inequalities as a model going forward, where for decades it's not worked? And then just to talk to you a bit about, I know you've been doing a bit of community outreach work. Um, do you want to tell me a bit about that and what you've been doing? Yeah, so the community outreach work, and again, this, this is about the messaging. We have on, on for, for a long time been receiving daily regular messages uh, around how to avoid coronavirus, what to do during lockdown, etc, etc. But my question is, are these messages reaching those communities, those groups, the PME groups, the deprived communities, inner city areas, in the manner that they should be. And are they understood? And are they understood and then acted upon in the same light and in the same thrust that the government are putting forward? I question that. So I did actually say that if we don't get these messages that are tailored messages to the different communities, working with the communities, working with the local authorities, using pharmacy as a vehicle, potentially, then these messages may be lost. And what do we see? We saw a sudden spike um, during the COVID period within the BME groups and then within the deprived communities. We need to look at our communities. We need to understand our communities. We need to work with those communities. And that message has, is not one size fits all. Language becomes important. I don't just mean about the different spoken languages that people from the different BME groups um, uh, speak, but it's the jargon. You know, you, you hear the word epidemiology on, on the national news. How many people know what epidemiology means? So let's make it in a sense that they can really relate to it. Can we not see pharmacy as an opportunity to take forward some of these messages? 43% of the pharmacies of the BME origin. We should be using that resource in these areas as an additional asset uh, in terms of being able to communicate more effectively. And where language becomes a problem, then use the people that can speak the language in, in a more productive and more effective manner. And that, in, that goes right across the workforce. So I think the way the next spike is going to happen, if we step up our game, if there's some real concerted government intervention and support for community pharmacies to be better equipped, to be mobilised, to be kept safer, obviously, we may be able to reach out to these communities in a way that's not happened before. We've learnt a lot from the first, first spike that we've had. Let's take those lessons but put them into practice to reaching out where it really matters to the different communities. The other thing that we should be more mindful of that organisations, whether if it's multiples, independents, they're all doing their level best now to get these risk assessments out. They are, they are concerned about the safety of their, of their staff. And we've seen the reports where BME staff uh, are not being risk assessed yet. But that was when the survey came out by, 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 by the Pharmaceutical Society, Royal Pharmaceutical Society. But since then, people have made active measures to move this along hugely. And I know through my work with Lloyds and Well and other organisations, 
I must emphasize they genuinely want to do something. They care for their staff and I'm not just saying that because I'm involved. I think the support is also needed into the smaller independent pharmacies, the smaller chains. How do we actually manage um, and make that work where the work staff, where the workforce is not adequate? How do we mobilize that? That needs a real, real discussion around how that can be best implemented uh, in order to protect the staff as much as possible where you've got a small workforce. It may not be easy to say, well, don't go on the front line when there's nobody else to go on the front line. But is it something that they can reduce the amount of exposure to the front line? Is it something that they could rotate or is it something they could have different days or is it something that they could work at time when it's not so busy? There's all sorts of things dependent on the individual pharmacy at a, at a, at a community level of how they can work. But we need to be sensible, we need to work with the staff so that they're happy as best as possible under the circumstances and it's practically possible for the pharmacy itself to implement these, the recommendations coming through really. Mahendra, let me ask you one more thing as well. What about, are there any problems with the risk registers? Name of the risk registers, I mean, people are using different risk registers. It's important that the, we interpret the meanings of those in the fashion that will get the best out for that particular pharmacy itself or the organisation or the the wider workforce. But my key learning so far is there are so many risk registers um, of which it is important that we follow the right methodology in terms of getting it out to the to the workforce. They understand why we're doing it and the importance behind it and it's the following steps afterwards where the recommendations that come out from it is conducive to both to making it happening. So the risk and the other the other thing about the risk registers is that we can't say there's one standard risk register because it will be different perhaps to meet with the requirements of different um, pharmacies and, and organizations. So there has been this issue where where I've been working that it is different for different companies and also it depends on the size of the organisation and how it fits down to the lower level, really. So for for people who are still trying to get their risk registers sort, sorted, it is important that it meets the needs. This is not a tick box exercise. This is something that has value, purpose and meaning. And, and they want the government now want a report, particularly within the hospital setting, uh, of the recommendations following the risk register as well really so I think there'll be a step further back uh, further coming out of that as a review perhaps as to what have you done and how we're we going on with that so these are here to stay they change we need to modify and update with the new evidence that keeps coming through um, so it becomes a dynamic thing it, it, it's evolving um, as uh, by the day really so that's one thing that you need to be mindful about the risk registers. That was Dr. Mahendra Patel, one of the members of the CND Clinical Advisory Board and a pharmacist and academic. Today we talked about the risk assessments that are being carried out for BME staff and what more pharmacists can be doing for the community during these unprecedented times. We spoke about the local lockdowns that have started over the last couple of days and what pharmacists can be doing to help communities in the event of a second wave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to CND Podcasts on iTunes or your preferred Android app. 
Thank you for listening.